kick off this session of the safety view and we've got Lisa uh, doing the session today. All right, first I would love to see or hear who's actually on with us tomorrow. Do you have uh, a sense of that or can they be woven in? Yeah, why don't we do a round robin? All right, great. Okay, uh, I'll kick off and then we'll have the others introduce. Hello all, uh, I'm Lisa Landy. I currently reside in the Netherlands. I'm a US citizen and uh, it's given me a unique global perspective of what's going on these days. Um, I will be discussing how safety and unsafety, if you will, become so interlinked and how they might even be necessary. And that will be kind of the basis of this conversation. Uh, I'll quickly say I'm a psychologist, both clinical and industrial organizational. All right, let me just turn it over if people could say their names and where they are currently and what their expertise in one sentence is. That would be great. Okay, but my name is Rosa Carrillo, uh, and I'm one of the hosts of The View. Uh, working with Lisa and, uh, and Tamara, and I have a consulting uh, practice in leadership and high-performance team development. And I'd pass it over. Next. System safety engineer for about uh, 45 years, maybe even 50. <laughs> and uh, author, lecturer, uh, taught system safety engineering at the University of Maryland for about 14 years. Uh, basically did everything you could probably think about uh, concerning safety since about 69. Uh, Where are you now, Mike? Where uh, do you live? I, I am in, uh, obviously, um, U.S. I am in South Carolina. Thanks. In in Del Webb, a nice retirement community, fifty plus community, and a lot of people are pretty frustrated in the sense that we can't use the amenities. And I'm trying to keep people uh, from killing each other. You know, going for donuts and sitting next to each other. They can't. I can't keep them separated. And, Mike, uh, hold that thought. Let's let the others introduce and we'll come back to that. It factors in greatly. <laughs> Bill Nelson in Houston, Texas, recently retired from DNVGL. I'm a nuclear engineer by training. I spent 24 years at the Idaho National Laboratory, um, primarily working in human factors and risk management for nuclear and aerospace, and most recently, offshore oil and gas. Great, welcome. Gary, why don't you go next? <clears throat> Morning, y'all. Um, my name is Gary Wong. I'm right now, I'm in Vancouver, Canada. I basically, I'm an electrical engineer by trade, but mostly was in management consulting. I've actually kind of like repurposed myself. I'm into the complexity space now, so even my title has changed. I'm, I'm a complexity facilitator and I am a Kinevin associate. Great, welcome. Eric, you're next. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well today. Uh, my name's Eric, I'm located in Toronto, Ontario. I currently work at, <clears throat> excuse me, Velocity EHS as a 
business development uh, team lead. And um, I simply look to learn more about relationship building in organizations, um, creating a safe place psychologically, and um, just how to build effective relationships internally, generally. I'm just looking forward to hearing the conversation today. Thank you. My name is Philip Harris. Um, I'm currently in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I've been in the nuclear industry for 43 years now. And the last three of those have been over here in Abu Dhabi. Um, and, and I would say I'm probably a, a cult, safety culture specialist. Welcome. And Kalash, did I say your name right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Thank you. Welcome. Please, yeah, please yeah. introduce yourself. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm Kalash. Um, actually, I'm from the Indian Air Force. I served Indian Air Force for 25 years as an electrical engineer. And the last of my tenure, I was faculty for the electrical instrument there. And now from the last five years, I am working to develop the safety culture. Basically, I am trying to integrate the psychology in the, in the safety culture for a mining industry. Presently, I am looking after the operations of CBRE and what particular state. Welcome. Uh, that's called the Rajasthan state, if you've heard of it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. And we do have a few people who are on telephone and have shared themselves in the chat. So we have Paul uh, Daly from um, Ireland, and uh, he's been in HSQE for the past 18 years, engineering and construction. We also have uh, Stephen. He lives in Belgium, and he just graduated and wrote his paper on multicultural safety. So welcome. Lisa, why don't you take it away? We uh, thank you for bringing them both in, Tamara. Um, we have 50 minutes of precious time, and I know we could talk six hours on this. Um, let me just give a bit about what motivated me to have this conversation now. It most definitely links to everything that's going on right now in our world. Um, and, and when we talk about complexity, and I'm glad Gary's on board um, so he can share a bit about this too. It just is an interesting reflection to make on how we have so much VUCA, which is the volatile, the ambiguous, the complex, and the unclear or unknown, all kind of interweaving. And I'm going to, if I have uh, freedom here, we'll lump that all into unsafety, uh, the sense of just being uprooted and how that sense of uprootedness has actually propelled us um, into a, a new stability, if you will, and how VUCA and, and this, this constant change is not something that's new to us, which is a lovely paradox that it itself is quite stable. Um, and so, you know, we have these, the stability and the instability playing off each other all the time. Um, so again, it's current events that have really made me aware of how much um, strength and power is coming out of what feels really tenuous and unsafe. So I thought it'd be great to pull together, you know, a diverse set of people and have this conversation. And I'm basically going to just turn it over to the floor and whoever wants to chime in and get this started. I will ask that we try and really pull in a lot of voices here and do our best to not hold the camera as I am right now. 
So with that said, it's open. Well, I guess we're experiencing a global system risk right now in the sense that everything is connected and there's complexity associated with such connections. And um, I would like people to understand how to look at the big picture and understand all the elements of, of the complexity, the human, the machine, the environment, and all the interactions. And, and uh, from my perspective, it is not as challenging as people might think. Maybe it's because I've been so close to doing this for so long. I just create adverse scenarios and I analyze these scenarios and they could, could be any adverse sequences. So let's stick with that, Mike. Do, are you implying either directly or indirectly that gaining um, experience or comfort with um, challenge can actually bring ease? Are you, are you kind of making the case here? Well, I, I, um, I have a very uh, strange way of looking at things. Apparently, I'm fixated, uh, probably because of uh, uh, doing this for so long. I, I have a tendency of seeing connections and, and very easily. I, I, I see pictures and I see adverse sequences. And we're sitting in uh, uh, a consequence of that, this, this, this global system risk. And we don't seem to be uh, um, approaching or managing this risk appropriately because we are disjointed. We, we are all segregated in our thoughts. And we have a hard time climbing out of our boxes. I didn't want to take over this conversation, but no, that's, that's great. My perspective. So it's very difficult. You know, we're all getting used to, to having these conversations online. If we were all in the room together, we would see nonverbal. So anyone else on there kind of want to pick up and move with that? Well, I would like to make a comment, Michael. I, I think that's a, a very insightful comment that you made. Um, the culture of the United States, when you, when you look at Hofstede and Trafford, is the most um, individualistic of any country uh, in the world. Uh, I think except Czechoslovakia, the last time I looked. But uh, I think that, uh, that it's in the very DNA of the culture that you can't tell me what to do. So um, that goes to the issue of, you know, how do we take culture into account when we're trying to work these scenarios and implement, um, and implement processes or, or solutions? It takes a lot of discussion. And uh, I might just do that instinctively over time, but you actually have to spend a lot of time with people almost on a one-to-one -one, uh, concept and, uh, and win people over. 
And, and I mean, you ladies have talked about it, trust, transparency, you know, things like team building, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, there are human factor uh, considerations in team building, uh, which I do appreciate. And I just basically do this instinctively. I, 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 I have a tendency of, of seeking feedback real time and, and, and read cues from people. And I try to respond to these cues. I don't know, maybe it's lecturing for 45, 14 years or whatever. It's all instinctive. And uh, I'm motivated uh, to sell this concept. And I've been in cultures that were pretty, how can I say it? <laughs> uh, pretty static and pretty political and, and not easy to change. And I did have some success and, and, and some failure. So now we're confronted with this situation where our tried and trues are not necessarily beneficial to go to as our go-tos. It's requiring an ability to be more adaptive than maybe our organizations and even society and various <laughs> cultures have evolved to be. And Gary, I know I'm probably putting you on the spot here, but I'm wondering selfishly, you know, as much as you delve into the complexity piece of this and how it relates to cultural evolution and human evolution, do you, do you want to, Say a few words. Yeah, thanks, um, Philip. I saw your hand waving, so if you want to come after me, please do that. I'm so sorry, thank you. Yeah, what's been happening is that um, I think we've been living kind of in an order world. So one of the things that we look at is that there are three basic systems that make up the real world. There's an order system, and Mike's scenarios fit in that really well, um, cause and effect stuff. Then we have this thing called the complex system, which we're really still trying to learn about. And we have the chaos system here. So I think what's happening is that when we look at the order system, like scenarios, for example, here, uh, when I did Peter Schwartz's stuff, the art of the long view, you would take your, what we call the known knowns and you would project them out into this cone of plausibility. Then you can create some scenarios and you can do some what if around that. What we're facing today though, are unknown unknowns, unknowables, unimaginables. And the thing is that they're not coming one at a time sequentially. We get hit with a pandemic, it's called coronavirus. Well, what does that do? It actually causes a rupture of another pandemic called social injustice. And I'm really concerned about where you live, Mike, down south. You're gonna get another catastrophe coming and it's called extreme weather, hurricanes. I just don't know what these three come together is going to produce because they're all novel here. We don't have the time, unfortunately, to sit down and talk to each other one-on-one -on -one to figure things out here. So they're kind of like the process or methodology we're trying to do in the complex spaces. You just got to get out there and just do some experimenting, try things out here. And we're actually seeing that now as you're trying to find a vaccine for the coronavirus here. 
nobody knows if we we're ever ever going to get one here. So you have like 170 people trying things out here. You whittle them down to maybe 13 to try on humans here, but there's still no guarantee that we're actually going to have a vaccine. But meanwhile, life carries on. We still have to somehow stabilize and do other stuff, flatten the curve, social distancing, all these things here on the hope, on the hope that we will get a vaccine. Philip, you had something to say? Well, oh, I'm, 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 not, I'm not intimidated by synergistic risks. I understand not, synergistic risks. Hold on one second. I think, I think Philip was going to speak. I'm sorry to yeah. cut you off. Yeah. Turn your mic on. Philip, turn your microphone on. Yeah, so uh, I was going to respond to to something, and I'm not quite sure who said it now. Um, Mike, talking about, Mike I think Rosa said about about the um, Hofstede and and the the American culture of being the, the very individualistic. Um, I'm I'm sat in a, a very different place here in in Abu Dhabi. Um, I think there, there are many different factors. I think wealth is probably one of the factors that has caused less concern here. Um, we're in a situation, we have a population of about 10 and a half million people. And um, I think it's something like about 40% of the population have been tested now. Uh, the isolation, we've all regions have been isolated. So you've been un unable to travel between regions. So did the people kick up about it? No, 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 they didn't because culturally, it's all about being together, and this is this is for the good of the the good of the community. And and that's a, that's probably for me the, the major difference that I've recognised. I'm working in a, a multicultural organisation, 60, 70 different nationalities. So it, it's something that um, is quite common. It's not it's not, un, not uncommon, put it that way. And and so. What it, what have you taken away from that learning that is is assisting you here? I, I think I missed that, Philip. Excuse me. So, I, I think for me, the the way that the different countries have have reacted to the this pandemic in particular have right. been cultural and finance. I would probably say are, are the biggest impacts. The way the way that they, the the nation has dealt with it. Now, I'm obviously very, I'm from the UK, so I'm very, um, I, I follow what's happening there. And what's happening there is very similar to what's happening in the States. Um, there, there we, we also on Hofstede scale are very individualistic. Um, and, and that has an impact upon the way that we as a community or as groups deal with situations like this. Huh. So, are, you know, if we were looking at what is leading some of our countries to better adapt under this complex environment we're finding ourselves, would one of those characteristics be the individual versus the collective approach? Or, I, I don't know, other, oh, other thoughts? Anyone else? The world is getting smaller via social media, via movies. You see graffiti that originated in, in Brooklyn, 
in Europe. I, I think the world is getting smaller. Uh, I think we are becoming more consistent in the way we communicate. We see this on LinkedIn. We all come from different backgrounds and different perspectives. Uh, I think there's a mutual respect. There, there's a mutual banter, banter uh, and, and good discussions. So I, 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 I don't know. I, you know, I, 30 years ago, I was on a space station and uh, went all over the world. And we were, we were talking about complex risks and, and how we communicate around the table with everybody. And it just took a while. It took a while for us to communicate, to build our trust, to understand each other. I think the interaction, the interfaces, the communication, all of that helps. And, yeah. and you know, we were able to integrate an international uh, entity fairly successfully. So, and Michael, if I was to ask you in that experience, what do you think was a key role to helping um, get people to collaborate and build that? relationship and trust, bringing well, such a diverse group together in an unusual circumstance. Well, we, 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 we eventually socialized. We went out to dinner together. Uh, I love the coffee breaks. <laughs> and, and, and we started to enjoy each other. Now, my background is European. You know, I Brooklyn kid, but uh, coming from a big city, we kept, kept our ethnicity. Uh, we we were we are very close to Europe, so I was well accepted, frankly, compared to the guys from Houston with cowboy boots. Um, they would actually respond to me rather than respond to the NASA chief guy because he had sideburns and you know cowboy boots. Can I uh, add an observation here? Um, because, and I, I would love to know what you all think. By the way, you know, you need to raise your hand so that we know you want to make a comment, okay? Um, you know, I have met people like Michael in my career that seem to have this ability. Um, it's very hard to teach it. <laughs> very hard to teach it. But I know that you have all work with leaders who go into a very chaotic, distressful situation yep. and work with the team, create the team and bring everyone into alignment so that it becomes a high performance site or team. And in my observation, this is always around uh, the, the leadership of that particular person, the personality of that particular person. So I would like to know from some of you others, um, if you have had, Bill, I know you've worked in nuclear for a long time. What's been your experience in terms of the difference in performance and the way people communicate and the trust levels? Um, do, you, do you think it's um, uh, based on individual leadership or, or do you think there's other factors? Well, individual leadership obviously plays a significant role. And uh, I've had the pleasure 
because of my career of working across industries, uh, nuclear and defense and uh, aerospace and oil and gas. And uh, definitely the tone and character of the leadership uh, makes, a, makes a big difference. Um, and I'm interested in Mike's comment about the guys from Houston in the cowboy boots. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time uh, working for NASA here in, here in Houston. And uh, maybe it's because it's being at the center itself, Mike, but uh, those guys in cowboy boots, in, in my experience, were, were nothing but open-minded and accepting and very little of the cowboy mentality of, I know better than everybody else. So, well, well, well that, this, this was a second one. So, so I think. May I make an, an intervention? I'm sorry, it's the facilitator in me. But this discussion is not with Michael, okay? So, Michael, please don't feel like you have to respond to every comment because we're here to listen and learn from each other. So, uh, Bill, please uh, finish your thoughts. And I encourage other people to add to it or disagree, um, whichever, because we're here to just not, not necessarily take an expert's point of view, but to bring out the expertise in each one of us, okay? Yeah. So, Thanks, Bill, Rosa. please finish your sentence. Thanks, Rosa. I, I shouldn't have specifically referred to Michael's comment, but my experience is it's it really depends on the openness of the individual leaders and their willingness to, to listen to different points of view rather than saying, I've got this all figured out. You know, one of the, one of the comments that we had gotten in advance of this um, episode, if you will, was from John Green. And he was responding to you, I think, Rosa. He wondered how, how, us managing now in a crisis, and I'm kind of grouping managing and leading together here, um, how it's any different than the, the complexity, if you will, that we deal with every day prior to a crisis. And, and I'm curious if those same characteristics that we're talking about as leaders, when you think of those effective leaders, you know, have they changed? Do they need to change? Is there anything different? Yeah, I think, Lisa, I just, I want to turn it over to everyone, but um, and tomorrow wants to say something, but John, John Green, yeah, he was saying that he doesn't see any difference between the two, right? Tomorrow? That's right. And I'm curious if others feel that way. Yeah. Tomorrow? See and, and I'd be interested in, in how much it is um, upon the perception of, of the person delivering it also that gets the, a different response from, from the people. Because I have had um, experiences where I can watch in a room well, the leader will be very, um, have open listening and really engaged with some people in the room. And then when other people in the room are speaking, there isn't the same amount of respect. So I think it also goes towards why do we change our demeanor and level of respect towards different people? 
What are people's thoughts on that? Would you ask that again, Tamara? Oh, I saw Gary raising his hand. Okay, go ahead. People yeah. are thinking about what I said because it's pretty profound. Yeah. It is the well, elephant okay. in the room, really. I think it all depends on context, what the situation is. So if you have a situation where you're just looking for something that's innovative, you know, something that's new, but there's not a lot of, not a lot of time pressure, there's resources to be allocated, and you're willing to take a perspective, you can take your time, you can explore, you can experiment and have a good time learning as you go along here. And then hopefully something will emerge. In a crisis, it's a different context. So you're under huge time pressure to kind of escape chaos, stabilize here, Resources are all over the place, in many cases here. And typically what I find managers and leaders, we all look up and say, what do you want to do? And the poor guy goes, I don't even have any answer. I didn't have the right questions here. But they feel compelled because that's what we teach in schools that leaders lead. So we expect them to do something. And so they kind of take the perspective that they've got, which has been honed after years and years of experience, and they just follow their own heuristics and say, we're going to go that way, right or wrong. And everybody jumps behind that because it looks like that person is leading. But hell's bells, we may all be going over a cliff because it could be a blind path into a fog. We just don't know what's going there. So I think it takes great guts for a leader to kind of go like, I am not going to do that. I cannot do it by myself. I need everyone around me to, to engage me. And we're going to have to do this step by step, kind of like evolve in the present here, because it's foggy out there. We just don't know where the next step is going to be. Gary, I'm struggling with this piece of it, because this is, am I cutting anyone off? Because I cannot see who has their hand raised. Am I cutting anyone off? Well, I, of course, my okay, hand let, raised. Well, I just want to say this, please in response to Gary, um, it does seem that, that we are in need of a different leader and that that leader is each of us. I think the time has come where we have to move from the individual leader to a collective leadership. And, and I believe that part of our inability or difficulty becoming adaptive in response to the crises we've been faced with is because we keep relegating that responsibility to the few as opposed to the many. And that is the beautiful thing and hence the, the motivation for this discussion. This crisis, this VUCA, this upset, this, this real unknown has stimulated the individual leader within each of us to become collective in a collective movement, saying we want equity amongst each other. And I think that's a beautiful thing that's requiring a different leadership moving forward. So that's my piece. Uh, other thoughts on that, just jump in. Bill Nelson. Mike has thoughts Bill on Nelson. everything, so Mike's not going to say anything. Bill Nelson. All right. Lisa, I think your VUCA concept 
which I'm unfamiliar with till now is a big part of this because there is so much uncertainty in what's going on. And yet there are individuals and leaders who are pretending to have, you know, the, the absolute knowledge of, of things that are very, very uncertain. There is so much scientific uncertainty as well as all the social uncertainties that go with it that for anyone to, to have the corner on understanding the situation is, is, a, is, a, is at least inadequate. Thank you, Bill. I really have that sense too. Other thoughts about that? The health professionals should provide the leadership. The politicians should not provide the leadership. Who's a health professional? I'm a health professional. My mom's a health professional. Who isn't a health professional is my question. Who do you mean by health professional, Mike? Who, who are you speaking about? People that, have, people that have knowledge about epidemiology, people that have knowledge of this particular risk. It, Expert. It would be helpful for uh, integrated concepts. It would be helpful that uh, the world would get together with its health professionals. And I know they're trying with the World Health Organization and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's, that's kind of sad. I, I, I'm, I'm looking for guidance from a group of professionals that actually understand what they're talking about. I'm looking for consistent treatment options from local medical professionals where, where maybe we could have a choice of our treatment options. I'm looking for some integration instinctively uh, to solve this problem. And I can't listen I to predictions. You know what you're bringing up, I'm gonna link it back to Gary's discrimination of boxes of order, complexity, and chaos. And you know, maybe these boxes blend, maybe we need the order that you're speaking to in respecting expertise. Even though they're confronted with unknowns now too, as I think we all know from watching the news. And we also need those which is everyone who's dealing with complexity and making sure those voices are heard. Could it be both? And Kalish, um, Kalesh, I'm wondering if you have something you'd like to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, actually I want to just add to the Michael's point of view that uh, it should be left to the professional who knows something about this. Uh, my point of view is, do, do anybody claim uh, in, this, in this particular situation that he knows something? Because as for me, this is a complete uncertainty. Though uh, some health professionals, yes, you can say that you guide them, accept that uh, all other aspects, uh, like financially, professionally, on every aspect, there's, there's a complete uncertainty. And uh, nobody can claim to be the, who is having a, at the top of this uncertainty. So the leaders has to come within us that, that, that there, there may not be any hierarchy on this, that, that may be from the, from the bottom side, but the, the people who can have, who have more resilient way of working, or who have more, more resilience, who can have more motivation so that the, the people around him is, uh, is motivated and uh, able to take up that, uh, that challenge. 
uh, that will add to the value. Kalesh, you had sent in a question in advance, and I wonder if this isn't a time you could expand on it a bit. You had asked uh, about the views of uh, psych psycho-behavioral elements and its impact on safety. I'm curious what uh, if you would share what you think about those aspects and yeah, yeah. I, sure, 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 Lida. Actually, this this is basically the integration. Uh, uh, if you if you see the behavioral modification methods, and if you see the behavioral based safety, so we talk about different enforcements and all this this stuff. But do we really know ma majors the actual what is going on in the brain of the worker? And if we know, if, if we can observe something, if we can observe the actual behaviors of, say, suppose, of not 100%, say, suppose, 80% or 70% of our workforce, then we can devise that particular uh, psychological tools which can be, we can use to modify that, basically. This, was, this, is, this is basically what was my idea. Actually, what uh, I have done at one of the site, I, I divided these guys in a two different categories. One is that there are some people who uh, commits the unsafe acts, even intentionally also to have some shortcuts or uh, to so that the, they, they're, they're getting it very early. The task is completed very early. And some people are there where, where they, they have something which is, which is not there, they don't know actually. So to to make them in two groups and to measure the psychological effect, the, the, uh, the reason behind this, this unsafe acts and then modify as per the psychological tools like we, we teach in the schools in the, with the boys and girls or the students we have uh, this thing, slow learners and all, all this stuff we, we, we really use. So that, that things if we can use here, integrate with the, with the industry. So that will be a added advantage. This was my point. Basically, I want to put for that. So basically, you're you're seeing how their psychological makeup impacts safety. Yes. Yes. And whether it's positive or negative, and and the emotional space does that also right. impact? Yes. Their yes. Their, their creation of safety or or their response yes. to feeling unsafe? Yes, their, their, their response to their enforcements. And if, and if we find something where we want to uh, add something or we want to just observe and give, give some, some reinforcement in terms of positive, negative, or punishment or whatever the method, that we can add. This was more. And of course, that impacts safety. Yeah. In the negative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Interesting. I would like to highlight sort of a paradox that I overheard here. Uh, I'm Cade, by the way. I didn't get a chance to introduce myself here. But I have an interesting Hi. perspective in that I've lived in both Canada and the U.S. And uh, to highlight sort of... The paradox in the U.S. is, yes, we want the choice, but we also want to listen to the professionals. However, in the U.S., we, our health is very much determined by people who are not experts. For instance, 
if a doctor prescribes me a medication and it's not covered by uh, my insurance, my insurance who has not the medical training that my doctor has will say, I need to be prescribed a lesser drug or a less effective drug or the drug that's not the best on the market. And so here uh, you can see in the U.S. very uh, uh, apparently when you put any sort of stress on this complex system of, uh, of, of our insurance companies and our p politicians, when we're not listening to our doctors, the ones with the expertise, what sort of catastrophe has happened here? So I think it's interesting that we both at one time want the choice to be protected and have the choice to seek our own medical choices. However, we also want the medical professionals to be able to, to voice their expertise. We've basically have made our medical professionals um, basically tied their hands here. They know what to do, they know, but we can't listen to them. We have to listen to um, the uh, insurance companies here. Yeah, that's Welcome sort of the Bay paradox. <laughs> yes, that's the paradox that I've seen here. <clears throat> you actually brought up Gary. Go ahead, please. I saw Philip and uh, and then uh, Tamara raise their hands. <clears throat> Thanks, Rosa. Mm -hmm. Philip? Nope, he changed his mind. Tamara? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, I want to bring in the the our social conditioning into this discussion because we have been socially conditioned for decades, decades, to, um, to allow, you know, this concept of, of who should be in power repeatedly. So it's not a wonder that now in the modern world, we keep falling back into our historical structure of how power should be delegated, right? Um, it's always been a very small group of people who have made the decisions for the collective. And now we're trying to bring it around so that we're, oh, we're going to engage the employees. We're going to bring people into the conversation. We're going to do all this. But we're neglecting to, to break open the fact that historically it's never been allowed. And now you've got employees who are afraid of speaking up because we have been put in our mindset that if you speak up, you are a subordinate, you're being subordinate. And it's nice in a theoretical realm to say, oh, isn't it just nice if the employee is empowered? But working in the grocery store, where that industrial mindset of you're the employee, so be quiet, do your work, I'm going to tell you what to do. And they even say to people, you're not paid to think. So I'm going to put that out there, right? Because I think that's a piece of the conversation that we have Absolutely. to really crack open. And, and it's part of the elephant in the room, right? It's huge, Tamara. Sorry, like I... we're trying to give power to people that are disempowered. Who was who gonna speak? That was, uh, sorry, Matthew Gonzalez. Um, so I'm from South Africa, which if you know a little bit about our country, we, we've had a long history of totally. this power divide I would say, yes. uh, with our, our laws, apartheid, et cetera. Uh, and I think, so we, we as sort of culturally are in quite an interesting space at the moment. We have a lot of our sort of 40 plus manager type people have been raised and we're in a system where 
that sort of thinking was apparent where you were told this is what you need to do and you followed it without question. Um, and now we have filtering into our workspace, what we call in South Africa, the born free. So those born after we, we gained uh, democracy in South Africa in 1994, they are starting to filter into our, uh, our workforce. And it's just this weird and very strange and sometimes conflicting culture sort of battle happening within our organizations, never mind as our society as a whole, um, because they question more. They, they, they don't readily accept uh, that the word from a high authority is true. Uh, and it is very difficult. And I think a lot of managers within South Africa at the moment are struggling with that. Um, whereas our, our young people are becoming uh, a larger voice within our society. Um, yes. So it, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be answered. How do, how do we deal with this? How do, we, how do we move forward with it? How do we manage it all that is effective and productive for society? Yeah? And unfortunately, I don't think it's I have a clear answer I'd like to build on this, right? Because as, as a parent, you know, I'm finding it very interesting. I have a teenage son right now, just to, to give you an example of a generational clash is like when I was growing up and my parents asked me to do something, we just did it. Right. But when I'm asking my son, to do something and in his mind he's decided that he doesn't want to do it there'll be this conflict that comes out which of course doesn't occur in the in the workplace but clearly it's occurring and the thing that he comes back to me with is why does your generation always think we don't have the right to an opinion and we don't have the right to speak up and i'm like thinking whoa wait a minute here because Generation X, we tout ourselves on trying to get people collaborative, trying to engage people, right? But is it possible that the way we're communicating that is not coming through to the other generations, even though in our head we think we're being collaborative, et cetera? <clears throat> I, I think what we're Great. just seeing is that we're just seeing normal cycles of generational swings. And it's always a pendulum swing. That's 25 years. So you go back into the, you get the gay 90s. And that's followed by the Victorian age. Then you get the roaring 20s. Then you get, so I was in the boomer age here. So we were actually, you know, we did what we were told and all that sort of stuff here. And I go in like, I don't want my kids to grow up like I'm. So you give them more freedom. And they, and they go this way. And they go like, I don't want my kids to go this way. So they go back this way here. So we seem to be going through these swings here. I would say right now, with the youngsters who are actually very well equipped with smart devices and everything else and all these new social media apps, I'm still on Facebook and my, my nieces and nephews are off that. They're on to Snapchat and everything else here. I, so I've lost communication with them. But I think that is the generation and we're seeing it. Who's out in the streets doing the protesting and all this sort of stuff here. I'm, I'm behind them but I'm not out there in the streets with them because they actually have the moxie and the courage to be out there. Yeah, yeah. It, it is evolutionary and it is generational and it does have this kind of reaction, counter reaction uh, impact on the future generations. It's really fascinating. But I wanna go back to Matthew um, perspective here a bit ago. And Matthew, I imagine 
South Africa is once again in for some wonderful conflict. And I say wonderful conflict because I think change comes from conflict. And uh, maybe it's time that, um, you know, the, the power base is challenged. Um, and maybe the timing is appropriate for that challenge. Are you still on? Will you yes, respond? Yes, I'm still here. Still here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite difficult. Uh, I am a millennial. So when we went into democracy, I think I was eight years old. Um, didn't really understand what the previous era was all about but have always lived with the, the histories of it, the past, you know, coming back to us, um, see the, the implications long-term of it, and have been really privileged enough to actually see how we've tried to change and how we've tried to address all of these things. And uh, South Africans as a whole, I think, have got things right. We've also got things wrong. Um, and we've admitted to getting those things wrong. And I think that's, that's the big thing. I think if South Africa didn't have um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we would have gone somewhere totally different. And that was really, just to bring it back to safety, really a restorative just culture process within South Africa after we moved into democracy. And it, it's something that every South African who ever saw, uh, saw it or was involved in it, it, it sticks in our minds continuously and will never go away. And, and that's, that's the power of a restorative just culture in action. Right. Um, so right. I've heard a lot of people who don't really believe about it, believe it will work in, a, in an organization and, and my country's living proof that it works even on that grander scale. Um, making it wow. work from organization wow. is actually easier. Um, but right. yes, obviously we were in a, a, a time of, of change, of, of conflict, of disruption. Um, and COVID-19 has, has shone a light on some of the inequalities within our, uh, our system, in our, our nation. And I think across the world, they're experiencing the same thing. I think in the United States, with the, the Black Lives Matter protests, that was one of the things that was shone on. Um, South Africa, we have a, a different set of problems, which I'm sure uh, Paul, if I believe in Abu Dhabi, there's his set of problems that he sees. In the UK, they have their own different set of problems. We all have slightly different problems. But I think this time of disruption, disruption is a time for us to reset and to really say, okay, well, the world sort of switched off for, for a couple of months here. Um, that's a bad thing, but it's also a good thing. And maybe oh, we can do that now to our advantage and say, okay, well, you know, there was things that we maybe wanted to change and maybe to put in place and, and all these things. Now's the time that we can. Now's the time we can look at those complex systems and really starting to delve into them because we actually afforded a little bit of time at the same time as us having time taken away from us. It's a, it's a strange paradoxical situation that we find ourselves in. Well, that, and this is a great time. I'm, I'm going to, to take it back now to close out and just share a few closing thoughts. And Matthew, you, you brought it back full circle beautifully. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is I think we as humans have had a very difficult time holding two competing thoughts in mind as as unified. And um, I think we struggle with that unity because binary elements have an attraction, right? They allow us to compartmentalize. It makes us feel safe. We can do bad, good, black, white, uh, poor, rich, 
easily. It gives us a clear distinction. And we're at a time where we need some unity and some comfort with unity. So it's powerful to recognize just how instructive all these VUCA, the volatile, um, you know, um, the unknown, the complex, um, and the, the adverse experiences like COVID, and the, the not unrelated protests that uncover a very long history, going back to Tamara's point, of conferring superior and inferior status in the world, whether that is amongst and between humans or even human superiority or believing they're superior, superior over nature. And, you know, this, this desire to control as opposed to flow. Um, and I, I believe we're at a time where we can recognize that painful and unhealthy need healthy and ugly and beautiful are found in every aspect of society. And life endangering is also found in death defying. I think we have to be okay with those competing thoughts. Um, you know, VUCA is a gift to us. It's propelling us forward, meaning, and VUCA being synonymous here for me as unsafety, if you will. I think the ambiguous is paradoxically stable over time. The VUCA is stable over time. And the only thing that has changed for us, as I said before, are the circumstances we're dealing with. Um, somebody who's not on the call but had sent in and said, Lisa, you really need to add tea to VUCA. And he had shared Van Stralen and Cruz research on um, the, the need to add threatening to VUCA. I do believe we need a T, but I don't think the T represents threat because other research um, by Vorbe and his associates have found that some of us respond to VUCA very well and it's actually motivating and propelling. And that begged in my mind to, to wonder what are those attributes of individuals who see, um, you know, VUCA as something that's encouraging. And I think if I reflect as a psychologist on the need for leadership, it's the number one criteria is, is individuals who can be adaptive and responsive and encouraged by VUCA in order to create this new world order, or maybe I should say new world complexity. And this ability to flow with the change and seek to understand it before moving to our old way of needing to control it. That requires awareness. It requires humility. It requires an inner sense of security. And so how do we enable that within each of us so we're each acting as leaders and that will lead us to a collective leadership. We're getting closer to collective leadership. So I'm just going to end by saying that we're getting closer to that world that we embrace VUCA as opposed to repel our need to control it. And we're therefore closer to being a more humble um, collective that we can coexist with, with others and the planet. And maybe we're on the path to sustainable growth and development and we can actually realize the agenda for sustainable development by 2030. So with that, I'm going to say thank you to all for this conversation. And I hope we can continue to have more thoughtful conversations like this in the future. 
Um, any last thoughts or Tamara, do you want to close out? Well, I'll give the floor to anybody with last thoughts. Just raise your hand and, and take the floor. Um, uh, Rosa and Eric. Uh, um, Eric, go ahead first. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, just with regards to adaptability, I was watching another video on, I think it was at China, I can't recall, but he was explaining a new open heart surgery being conducted. There are two groups. The first group failed. Um, the first group grabbed a team of experts, highly professional, highly, highly qualified. They didn't succeed. The second group had a elite surgeon come along, I think, and he had a very human approach. He wanted to be called by his first name. He had team building events, etc. And they succeeded and they did this very complex surgery. Um, and I, just to Michael's point, um, it just, when Michael was talking for whatever reason, this popped in my head because it was such a simple thing um, to include people. And similar to Nobel Prize winners doing kind of random activities to jog their brain, like balloon tying and all this stuff. It's, it's, it's the benefit of having people in a community that may not, should, that should, may not be there in somebody else's eyes is their ability to jog your mind and offer a, like a pattern interruption. So you start thinking differently and change your rhythm. Um, and, and that with inclusion, I think, adds a good recipe for great ideas to come um, from, from my experience, too, on my, my own different endeavors. So I just thought that was really neat. Michael, thank you for talking about team building there. Eric, thank you. Rosa. No, let's, let, I think on that note, we're pretty complete. <laughs> Tamara, do you want to close this out, please? Thank you, everybody, for uh, joining us on the Safety View. Um, I think that was a really great conversation. We went into a lot of different areas, and I really enjoyed that, when we can have a safe place to really have open conversation. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So great. Thank, Thank you all. You.